Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. This is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hi, guys. What's up? This is the bi-weekly podcast that explores women who excelled in their fields in arts and sciences. So this week, we're going to learn about Margaret Sanger and anonymous art activists with gorilla masks. But before we do that, I have some updates from the one and only other episode we've had out. Are you going to tell me that Mary Anning was not, in fact, struck by lightning? Oh, no, 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 no. No. The lightning was there. It happened. It was real. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm going to preface this with the fact that I was never really into dinosaurs growing up, so how the hell was I supposed to know? I mispronounced plesiosaurus. I kept calling it pleosaurus, and my apologies for that. Uh, How dare you? I'm, I'm upset. I am very upset, if I'm being honest. If it makes you feel any better, um, I could not tell the difference. I know, but like, I, I don't know. It's fine. It's the perfectionist in me. It's cool. Anyway, it's Plesiosaurus, not Pleosaurus. And there's also another update. Uh, the other update is that while I was doing my final show notes... I found an entire Twitter dedicated to Mary Anning. Like, the tagline under the About section reads, A campaign started by Evie, an 11-year-old fossil mad girl, to erect a long-overdue statue of her hero, the remarkable paleontologist Mary Anning, on the Jurassic Coast. So, they, like, live in that area, and this little girl was like, We need a statue of this paleontologist that nobody knows about. They actually might be getting somewhere i think they are getting somewhere because they have an award-winning sculptist hazel reeves helping to design it uh and she actually just unveiled a statue for uh emmeline pankhurst in manchester um and then for those of you who don't know who emmeline is she was a british british political activist and leader of the british suffrage movement who helped women win the right to vote I know you asked me last episode if there was anything to commemorate mary anning after all of her work Uh, and, like, I told you that there was a stained glass window, but now there's actually, like, going to be a statue, fingers crossed, all because of, like, an 11-year-old girl who loves fossils, and that's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Oh, the Twitter, if you guys are curious, is uh, hashtag Mary Anning Rocks. I actually don't know how Twitter works, so (laughs) it might be at Mary Anning Rocks. Just put it in the search bar. It'll be there. Oh, that's too funny. (laughs) Um, Okay, so you have something to tell me. Yeah, so for today, uh, I'm going to be going over the Gorilla Girls and those silly, shrill suffragists. Um, So it's funny that you mentioned that that sculptor for the Mary Anning also did a uh, suffragist in England. Um, Are you familiar with that at all, or even the Gorilla Girls? Uh, No. I just know that she was like a, like a... Like an activist, so I'm assuming she was one of the girls. There's a few of them. Um, yeah. All right. So the Gorilla Girls are a anonymous feminist art activist, and over the last thirty years, they've basically been calling out art world BS. Um, they wear gorilla masks and they tackle gender and racial biases not only within the arts but in politics, film, and pop culture as well. Um, oh. So they do they do gorilla art. You know, kind of that's the choice in the mask that they wear. Um, that was their original MO. 
and they would do posters and flyers pasted all around lower Manhattan starting in the 80s. As their movement's grown, they've expanded past uh, focusing on gender issues um, to also address disproportionately represented minorities within the Western art world. Um, And I I think this is a pretty badass kind of mission that we can all get behind. Um, They're confronting some very ingrained and very problematic issues that are unfortunately very pervasive in just about every industry and field, which we touched on a little bit in our last episode. Um, So as an individual, what can you do? Well, for starters, you can get your own girly girl tote bag with eye holes. You can put it over your head. It's pretty fun. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, talk about like multifunctional. Right. Uh, You know, you can use it as like a reusable grocery bag or if you're going to the library or if you're like, oh, shit, I need to do some wheat pasting, but I don't want anyone to know who I am. (laughs) Totally That's literally like you can just like google gorilla mask tote bag and gorilla girls yeah no it's on their official website yeah and we'll have a link to that in our show notes oh that's Um, pretty awesome they've got like a whole slew of stuff that you can get um you can get temporary tattoos you can get dish towels uh t-shirts of course um (laughs) but my favorite out of everything is a assorted postcard box set Um, oh yeah, no, you'll know why in a little bit. So before we can go any further hearing about the Gorilla Girls and who they are and what they've done, we first need to learn about the suffragists. Because, I mean, duh, why not? Yeah. Uh, so as a side note, I'm going to use the term suffragists kind of as a blanket term for those advocating for women's right to vote. Now, technically, the suffragists advocated non violent means while suffragettes they were willing to fuck shit up a little bit to get their point across Hmm. and you can blame on the russians because that's who they learned it from (laughs) damn russians (laughs) yeah no i shit you not like i mean i'm not gonna go over that but that's that's legit who they learned it from oh my god um in july of 1848 in seneca falls new york it's a small town in the finger lakes region about an hour west of rochester Shit got real. Uh, the Seneca Falls Convention took place over two days with a few hundred attendees. You know, just including Frederick Douglass. Like, no big deal. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he just just on the VIP list. <laughs> uh, it was the first women's rights convention, and it, it really launched the women's rights movement, and it acted as a catalyst for other conventions. And it was organized by local Quaker women and led by Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And they crafted the Declaration of Sentiments uh, that basically calls out society's bullshit and demanded equal rights for women. Right. So you can think of them, Lucretia and Elizabeth, kind of as like, you know, best friends. So Lucretia and Elizabeth met in London in the spring of 1840. They were both attending the World Anti-Slavery Convention and were denied participation even though they were representatives of their respective abolitionist societies. Because, hmm. guess what? They're women. Yeah. Um, like, when they got there, they were like, all right, you know, we're here to represent our, our societies. And everyone was like, yeah, no, you guys can go sit in the back. Um, so they were kind of like dicks about it and kind of made them sit in this really awkward area. And there was only one guy who was like, I'm going to go sit with them. 
Um, I don't happen to have his name in front of me. Um, but so from that, they came back to the States and were like, fuck that shit. Um, and went about securing their own equal place in society. They died before that happened. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Frowny face. Um, so this declaration that they help write, um, it lays out the grievances of the convention and it basically encapsulates the second class reality of women in the area. Um, so the framework provided in this document provided a rallying call for decades to come. One section that still resonates today reads as follows. He has created a false public sentiment by giving to the world a different code of morals for men and women, by which moral delinquencies, which exclude women from society, are not only tolerated, but deemed of little account in man. It's almost 200 years later, and we are still dealing with these shit double standards. It's just, it's so frustrating. Um, And again, really depressing to be reading these things from 1848 and you're like gee that's still unfortunately very relevant today so by the late 18th century early 20th century the suffragage movement was in full swing along with the anti-suffragists because there's always assholes as you'd expect so the reasoning against equality it, it still applied today you know tearing the family apart violating gender norms and corrupting government policies and within this period, uh, the rival organizations, they really utilized publications to spread their viewpoints because, uh, you know, you couldn't just tweet that shit out in that day. Right. Um, so publishing books and pamphlets became really important and that was used to sway public opinion. Um, and one publication I came across that I just absolutely loved um, is a book published in 1915 by the American Alistair Miller. Mm-hmm. It's a collection of poems titled... Are Women People a Book of Rhymes for Suffrage oh. Times? <laughs> what? Did you get it? Did you... Can you read it? Oh, I have it. I, I'm oh. also going to include an excerpt on the uh, the show notes. Um, and I'll, I'll provide a link to it because it's in the, the um, Library of Congress collection. So you can, you can oh read it and God. bring up the PDF for it. it it's great. Um, it's fairly short, so it doesn't take too long to read through it because it's a collection of, like, her poems and kind of little satirical pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so originally, they were a weekly column in New York that aided in encouraging public support for women's right. right. Um, and so she has a great piece in it called Why We Oppose Pockets for Women. Um, that is for sure on the show notes. Um, and I think it's funny because to this day, I still have to insist to my partner that no, women do not actually have equal pocket representation in fashion, mm. and it is a conspiracy by clothing designers and purse companies, and I sound fucking crazy saying it, but it's the truth, and he doesn't believe me. How does he not believe you? Him if you really want, if you want to get them all ruffled up, all you have to mention is women's pockets. Because <laughs> he's so used to his big fucking like the shorts that he wears those jean shorts that he loves during the summer yeah uh, no those have not seen him out of pockets i don't he does not get the fact that it's a totally different playing game with women's pockets yeah and then wow. i tried to explain to him fake pockets and he was like i don't believe you i'm sorry yeah. can you just put his and this sounds weird coming from me just put his hands in your pants just to, like, see the depth. Because I feel like he's the very, like, logical, 
if he can't feel it or see it, then it doesn't exist. No, so, I mean, he acknowledges that there's, like, a difference in pocket sizes. He doesn't, he's not convinced that there's an overall um, industry-wide discrimination against pants, women's pockets, and pants. What what does he think purses are for? We don't carry that shit around because we like to. I mean, I don't carry that shit around because I have pockets. I mean, um, I I don't have a purse either. I have a backpack because fuck that. Like, purses are just, like, another thing I'm going to forget to pick up and it'll leave it somewhere. And no, not okay. Yeah, I mean, that's its whole boatload of issues. Um, so throughout this movement, it was maintained that the voting box was a dangerous place for women. They had no business in there, no head for politics. And if they really had any opinion, then just, you know, tell the man in your life and he'll take care of it. Mm. Yeah. Miller touches on this in her poem, A Consistent Anti to Her Son. Here I can get my poetry voice on. If you've boyish, fancy, friendly measure or man, tell me and I'll tell father. He'll vote for it if he can. He cast my vote on Louise's and Sarah and dear Aunt Chloe. Wouldn't you let him vote for you, father who loves you so? Do you think I'd send my only son where I would not go? So while books and pamphlets, they were all well and good, it was the postcard that arguably held the most sway in the suffrage debates. Unsurprising, in the anti-camp was a rhetoric that cast suffragists as manly, domineering, ugly, and trill women who hated men and wanted to destroy families with their pesky insistence on equality. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's how that works. Who would have thought? So postcards provided a cheap and abundant visual aid to further illustrate that concept. Uh, My favorite anti-postcard from 1909 is uh, one of a man with a very sour face, and he's bent over washing clothes while a baby and a cat are at his feet. Behind him, a sign reads, everyone works but mother, she's a suffragette. And I just find it hysterical and perfectly arguing the suffragist position. If it's not fair for a man, why would it be for a woman? Exactly. Why aren't you sharing the load? Um, so, well, uh, there's okay. an image of that up on the show notes. You guys should check it out. Um, awesome. So, again, we go back to the section in the 1848 Declaration of Sentiments calling out the different codes to which men and women are held. While the anti-side used postcards, the suffragists did too. Uh, and they really got their game on and hustled the fuck out of combating those stereotypes. With the conservatives, they were painting the suffragists in a negative light. Uh, they were using them to show just how educated and feminine the leaders were, uh, to show their peaceful protests, to highlight the cruelty that the women suffered for their cause, and most importantly, they used satire and humor to make the suffrage movement understandable to all. With the postcards, the suffragists, they were able to raise public awareness to their movements and to put pressure on the government to make legislative changes. Uh, and this is happening, you know, both in the UK and in the US, kind of, you know, uh, over the same period. Yeah, simultaneously. Yeah. So their visual strategies were, spoiler alert, successful. Uh, the use of imagery to further their cause, it was a really powerful instrument in achieving change. Uh, so right. much so that organizations took no- notice and employed those tactics themselves, like the Gorilla Girls, almost 100 years later, which is why I'm talking about all of this. The Gorilla Girls formed in 1985 in New York City, inspired by two events. 
The first was the 1971 publication of Linda Nochlin's essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? In it, she calls bullshit on the idea that there have been no great women artists, arguing that historically women have been denied the opportunity and resources to fully pursue creative endeavors. She says, quote, The miracle is, in fact, that given the overwhelming odds against women or blacks that so many of both have managed to achieve so much sheer excellence in those bollywicks of white masculine prerogative like science, politics, or the arts. So the second thing that inspired the formation of the Gilda Girls was the um, 1984 International Survey of Painting and Sculpture at the New York City Museum of Modern Art. Um, have, you, have you ever been there? No. On MoMA? I don't think so. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's a fun place yeah. to go. Um, so Wait, where is it? It's in New York City. Oh. Oh, no, I think I have. A long time ago with my mom. Yeah, Tim Burton did a big show back there, and that was really popular a few years ago. I imagine That's it was quite cool. a month. Are you are you googling it right now? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Don't worry about it. Keep going. I will. Of the 165 artists included in this show, less than 10% were women or minorities. Now, the Women's Caucus of Art prote- protested outside to no avail. Um, so there they were outside the MoMA protesting and. Like, no one gave a shit. They didn't care. They just kept walking by to go into the show. Um, offhandedly, the curator of the show, Kinestin McShine, remarked, any artist who wasn't in the show should rethink his career. It was that comment that sparked action. For the Gorilla Girls, quote, that was the aha moment. It was so obvious that there needed to be a better way, a more media-savvy, more contemporary way to get through to people. So enter the postcards. Kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. <clears throat> so, it's a very strange thing to see a gorilla girl walk down the street, uh, clad in black, bag over shoulder, with a hairy latex gorilla mask completely covering her head. Now, these masks <laughs> allow for aggressive and unapologetic tactics to raise awareness to the imbalance of power within the art world, and all without the threat of personal or professional repercussions. Even without seeing the protest art that the groups made, they have a very defined uh, visual embodiment to their collective. Now, their their early work uh, was posters um, inspired by the early um, conceptual works of Jenny Holtzner and Barbara Kruger. Their work's in the show notes. Um, So these early flyers touched on galleries showing either none or at most 10% women artists. Um, the lack of women having one-person exhibitions in New York museums, and uh, a crowd favorite, the pay gap between men and women artists. Spoiler, there's still a pay gap. Um, Like the postcards of the suffragists, their bold, easy-to-digest designs utilize graphic design, humor, and advertising, all to subvert gender stereotypes, uh, but this time within the art world. So when they went wheat pasting around Soho in the streets of 1985, it was really to the tune of, like, fuck you. They were calling out everyone's shit. Um, So they were taking shit from art galleries or museums that, in their eyes, held, quote, retrograde attributes towards women artists that characterize certain segments of the art world. So these street art critiques of local institutions, they're very fierce and scathing in the boldness of the design and the content. And, you know, it, just, it helps, too, that they, they're often pretty funny. Um, the earliest posters, they're in black and white, and photographs kind of creep into the designs in the late 80s. 
like the postcards of the suffragists, um, these flyers acted to raise awareness uh, for the public of the institutionalized discrimination against women artists and artists of color. Um, right. And it was, it's kind of cool because their critiques, all these or- organizations, they really did prompt change um, through the means of their public shaming. And it's, it's nice uh, to be able to turn the tables a little bit after all the centuries of public shaming that women have endured. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and really to use it to kind of call it sexist group within the New York City art scene. Uh, you'll be glad to hear that, uh, thankfully, as time has gone by, they've been able to shame on an international level. Uh, since they're, What? Yeah. So since their initial focus on the discrepancy of equal gender representation, they've expanded to include uh, racial issues and have extended their focus beyond just New York City uh, to the whole of the USA and Europe as well. Hmm. Yeah. So they've really grown beyond their initial, like, wheat pasting. Um they do more poster campaigns. They do billboards, um, you know, public action through exhibitions and panels and lectures. Um, and kind of a weird way, the the critiques that they lobbied against specific organizations, they have resulted in working with those groups and those groups at times mm-hmm. later purchasing the works of the Gorilla Girls. Um, so, for instance, in 1987, they were invited to an independent exhibition space to protest the Whitney Museum's biannual of contemporary American art. Uh, fast forward to 2014, and the Whitney Museum of Art acquired 88 posters and pieces from the 1985 to 2012 stretch of the Gorilla Girls' work, and that included some of the work that was critical of the Whitney itself from that 1987 show. So it's neat to see how things have kind of come full circle that they, they're working with the organizations that they had initially critiqued and they are, you know, really kind of helping to push things forward. Exactly. More representation for everybody. Yeah. And all again, going back to in a very public way, kind of shaming these individuals and organizations to like actually get shit done. Mm-hmm. Now, because it's like it's 2019 now. So like do they do not just like like street art and posters but do they also like go online put their like posts on those organizations yeah i think for the, the or, like call them out the bulk of it um it's about having a real world presence um so for instance they'll use their very distant kind of visual satirical style and uh, create these big billboards and hang them out like in front of shows um in front of museums okay um so it is it's very much protest art um okay like on the scene got it yeah like kind of yeah in the real world um and then of course you can see they've got a great website um you can go and check out their work and also see what they're selling and support them and see what panels and exhibitions they have coming up um so throughout the years the members have changed um, but it's all mm-hmm. anonymous, so it kind of comes and goes. And so, you know, as the public, you're not really sure who's been in it, who hasn't. Um, but there's some key members from the very beginning that have um, been part of the group. Um, and, you know, they're not without their infighting. There was a point, um, I think a few years back, where they did technically split off into two groups. Um, but despite their differences, they're still ultimately fighting for the same thing. Wait, what's the difference between the two groups? I believe kind of two founding members just kind of had a disagreement and so formed two variations of the Gorilla Girls. So if you're looking to book them for like a panel or a talk, 
um, you know, you just have to be aware of like which subset which one are you actually booking? Yeah, um, I mean, is it is one more like aggressive than the other? Like, what's what's the disagreement? Like, why? What's the difference if you have to like pay attention to which one you're booking? If it's just like a spat, like my art looks like your art, like between two individuals, or if it's a spat between the way that they like work as a group, like as a whole, what, why are they, is it just because of those two or is it because of the actual fundamental values? I think it was just the organizational structure and how they were running it and who was running it. Um, at the time I was reading into it and I was like, you know what, I'm not even going to mention it because I don't want to go into it because I don't want to distract from the group itself. Um, but I think it was just kind of clashing heads of people who were kind of like the higher ups and had been there the longest. Gotcha. Um, so if you look sometimes like on their website, they're like, we are not affiliated with the fill in the blank because that's the other group kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone can fall prey to a little bit of infighting. Um, yeah. So overall... With the Gorilla Girls, um, through their posters and flyers and stickers and bus ads and all the other protest material, um, they've really had an impact in uh, discriminatory practices in the art world and beyond. There's hmm. now there's a lot more that needs to be done. These women have really been instrumental in shifting perceptions of what's acceptable within the art world. Studies have shown that public initiatives to counter stereotypes, they do work by allowing people to see norms changing, and that can have an impact on their own behavior. Um, So, for instance, like, instead of telling people, like, you should litter, you should litter, suddenly you see everything, like, people are littering. Like, seeing people in the act of making, like, those changes um, can Mm -hmm. really, like, reverberate with people's own actions. Um. So what the Gorilla Girls have done, they've created an environment where it's it's normal to call out bullshit and hold organizations accountable for it. Um, and that's why their box set of postcards is my favorite item for sale on their website. Um, it kind of really highlights their whole visual style and how they've called out their the bullshit. Um, and it's great because that technique, it's actually worked and it's made changes and it's helped move things forward. And they're pretty funny too. There's one item that I absolutely love. It's on the show notes. Um, it's a whole list of the advantages of being a woman artist. So things like, you know, never having to worry about doing a solo show, uh, not having, <laughs> yeah, you don't have to worry about the pressures of being called like a genius. Um, you know, you guys should really check it out because it's it's so funny. Um, oh, man. <laughs> so I, I just think, I think they're really great because of them and other, you know, women and men like them they've really helped kind of make changes and said fuck that um to you know just this kind of normalized power structure where women are just kind of pushed aside along with a handful of other people you know to say the least um so that's why i like the gorilla girls and they're pretty cool postcards too (laughs) that's solid yeah so that's what the suffragist movement has to do with the gorilla girls in case anyone ever asks you on a pop quiz. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah, no, they're they're super badass, and uh, it's really fun to see pictures of them. Yeah, like they're not taking anyone's shit. I feel like that's what we should be for Halloween now. That would be an easy one. It'd be pretty fun. I mean, we already have a ton of black clothes. Yeah, no, I'm already set for that one for sure. Yeah, we just need the gorilla mask. 
But then we'd have to keep it on all night. And then, like, give people postcards all throughout the whole night. So I've seen, um, like, a picture of them photographed at, like, a gallery event. And uh, there there was one girl, and she – so there she is in the art gallery in, in the gorilla mask, kind of sipping a cocktail through a little straw through the mask. <laughs> I mean, you can make me. that shit work. That would be me. It would be my tequila on the rocks. And like, like, can I just get a bendy straw, please? Oh, my God. That's so funny. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was like the bartender stares. Like, what the fuck is with the mask? What is going on? <laughs> that's pretty great. All right. So you've got some slightly problematic things to tell me about Margaret. Yo, Margaret Sanger. Sanger, yeah. Yeah. Not associated She's... with the sewing company at all? No, because that's Singer. Well, you can... And this is Sanger. You can tell how much I pay attention to my sewing machine. <laughs> it's actually Ken Moore. <laughs> I mean, that's better. Yeah, out of the two of us, I didn't expect me to know that one since I'm not the artsy-fartsy. But I did used to make costumes back in the day. Yeah, and your, your mom and, like, and, you know, grandma, they've, they've done a fair yeah. bit of sewing. That's very... And my little... It's that's fair. I remember like when I was like eleven, and my grandma tried teaching me how to sew, and I was just like, "What? Why? Why are we doing this? Like, I don't want to make a shirt. <laughs> like, I don't want anything to do with this." But like, I remember that still. So if I'm like, like making a Halloween costume, or I want to like dress up or something, like I still remember some of the stuff she's taught me, like her and my aunt. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't even think about it for most of the year. And then when I go to do it, I pull it out of my ass. And I'm like, oh, shit, that stays with you. Yeah, see, cool. grandma was right. Gra- the the one thing grandma was right about. The one thing. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I don't know. I don't speak Spanish, so I don't know what she was saying most of the time. <laughs> yeah, she just, you just know she's, oh, man. My favorite part is watching you about, like, the holiday get-togethers, like, the family get-togethers, and Grandma was just, like, speaking in Spanish, and you're just, like, smiling, sipping on your tea, and you're like, okay, this is fun. (laughs) You don't know that I'm living in sin with your grandchild. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Oh. As far as she knows. Oh, God. Grandma. Anyway, I have a lot to break down with Margaret Sanger. And for those of you who don't know, she is the founder of Planned Parenthood. And already that's gonna like a huge red flag to some because of all the controversy around it. But she as a person had some stuff going on with her. Um, that I have to like, I have to touch on if not, like, I'm not doing, I'm not doing it fully. Um, so we're going to do, we're going to pack her story in three parts and we're going to start subjectively, go through her life, go through what she did. Uh, then we're going to touch on the ugly parts of her life and then we're going to end on a positive note, even as a, as a person and as a product of her time, she did leave some good in this world mm-hmm. and uh we're gonna we're gonna look at her as a whole essentially so she was 
born Margaret uh, Louisa Higgins, and she coined the term birth control. Uh, she was born in Corning, New York, September 14th, 1879. She had 10 brothers and sisters, and she was raised in a super Catholic family, um, strict, I believe, Irish family. And then when she was old enough to kind of figure out what she wanted to do, she became a nurse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she went to nursing school. And so... Sanger was already anti-abillion babies and pro-birth control simply because, I mean, there, there are multiple reasons. So the first reason is she saw her mother's early death. So her mom had, in total, 18 conceptions. She had 10 children, or sorry, 11 children, and seven of those were miscarriages. Ooh, God, that's tough. Yeah. So... Singer saw her mom essentially just baby after baby after baby after baby and then early death. So that's what she blamed it on was the amount of pregnancies that took a toll on her body. Mm-hmm. And that's honestly, if I'm getting into it, that's any mammal. That's humans. That's dogs and cats. That's why we spay our animals, people. But I mean, that many pregnancies, that many babies being built inside of a person is going to fuck with you. Um. And then she had her own pregnancy. So she married and she had three kids and all three of them gave her issues. So one of them wasn't a medical reason. One of them was just like the house burned down while she was pregnant with number two. Was it? Yeah. Was it by pregnancy number one? No. <laughs> this little kid I didn't was like, there can only be it. one. There can only be one. Uh, but like. The first one and the third one, she had bouts of tuberculosis. And they were onset by the pregnancies. You, I like the tuberculosis. You had that in the last episode, too. I know. I don't know what's going on. What is I don't the know why they're hundreds. All... It's almost like there was no, like, <laughs> vaccines to help eradicate <laughs> some of this stuff. <laughs> Jay, I wonder what it is. You know what? They <gasps> don't have Himalayan salt lamps. There it that's is. What it was. Or essential oils. Yeah. That's, I'm sorry. They just needed a little bit more lavender or, oil in their life. Or God's prayer. Taking care of the tuberculosis. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah, no. It, it was just like, really? Another tuberculosis case? Okay. But this one, this one survived. She survived and she did some crazy things with her life. Um, so between her mom dying early her own pregnancies and then as a nurse she saw a lot of poverty and i mean she she worked in the lower east side of new york city um and she witnessed like the relationship between poverty and not having a sexual education and not having Mm -hmm. access to any of that um so one specific story was sadie Sachs. uh this was like in 1912 she has or had a husband named Jake. I don't remember how many kids they had before this. Hmm. But when Sanger was called in with with her working physician to go to Sadie Sachs' house, she was really sick because she had done her own self-induced abortion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because she couldn't go anywhere, like, obviously dealing with stigma, that sort of thing. Um, so Sanger helped nurse her back to health and this was over weeks. They got to know each other over weeks. And by the end of it, Sadie looked her in the eye and was like, one more pregnancy is going to kill me. I'm going to die. 
and like even the physician was like you're you're right you can't have another baby you can't be pregnant again so Sadie goes well what do I do to stop that like how do I avoid that and the doctor looks both of them in the eye and goes just tell Jake to sleep on the roof <laughs> uh, <laughs> like damn men. the one option that the physician gave them was you know just tell tell your husband to go out like to another place like yeah just that's obviously sex. not gonna help yeah so fast forward a couple months they haven't heard from sadie and then finally they get a call to go back to the house this time another self-induced in abor- like abortion mm-hmm. And this when she was going to die. And she did. She died within 10 minutes of them arriving at the house. Oh, man. Yeah. So no sexual education, no resources. And a woman died because she couldn't do it. Yeah. She didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so then Margaret Sanger sees this and she goes, eh, I don't want to be a nurse anymore. I'm going to be an activist. So she, uh, like, distributes pamphlets and edu- for, like, educational purposes. Um, between 1912 and 1913, she writes What Every Girl Should Know. Uh, and they were a series of articles run in a newspaper called The New York Call. Uh, they were eventually published together as a book. And then they, like, talked about, like, birth control, sexual education, STDs, like, the whole thing. Um, so they, they did use contraceptives back then but it wasn't widespread knowledge obviously mm-hmm. um and then she would argue that actually this is interesting that healthy discussions about sexuality were needed to keep a society as a whole healthy which obviously but then her next point was that it was the responsibility of a mother to talk to her children about it because children will always go to the mother first when they have questions that need answered. And if the mother is not willing to open up and have these conversations, then it'll lead to a decline in health. Like, you need to be open. Yeah, I mean, that's still something that, you know, we need to practice today, just having those those healthy conversations. Oh, I know. And. I don't understand. Like, I don't, you know me. I have so many, like, I'm so open. I'm like a freaking open book. But, like, sometimes I'll say things to, like, people that are, like, not to strangers, but, like, people that I'm, like, talking to and, like, mm-hmm. being friends with. And they'll, like, twitch a little or just be like, what? And I'm like, what? No. Like, this is normal. It's normal woman stuff. You're a woman. I'm a woman. What's wrong? Like, what's happening? Um, but no, it's very, like, now it's still so, like, behind closed doors, so I can only imagine, like, 1900s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so after that, 1914, she starts The Woman Rebel, and that is a short-lived magazine. It only had about eight issues. So it was what every girl should know, but it was on steroids. <laughs> like, not holding back at all. <laughs> She was like, mm, I'm going to get a little more intense with this. Uh, it covered, like, STD, sex ed, that sort of thing. And then also, like, all other kinds of feminist issues that women of the working class had to, like, like deal with. Um, so that was the one of the first publications intended for women of the working class. But this, like, touched on everything. Kids, love and marriage... STDs, fucking prostitution, 
voting rights, like everything under the sun. And it was essentially to encourage women to take control of their own gender, uh, to be able to think freely in a patriarchal society, which, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so she would call them her, she would encourage women to be woman rebels is what she would call them, which is what the, what the magazine was named after. And she went as far as printing no God, no masters on the front page of every single issue. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, she sounds fun. Oh, she is all. I just she is a fun lady. Uh, for those of you who don't know what "No God, No Masters" is, it's an anarchist and labor slogan that started in England around like the 1900s, so around the same oh, time period nice. that she She's put like, it on her own. Nice ring to it. I, I mean, <laughs> do you know what her husband did for work at all? Oh, oh no, I didn't even look that up. I didn't even think about it because like nothing she does. Honestly enough, everything that I found about her, her husband or husbands were never meant like fully mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they were she was a standalone woman and she didn't need her husband. Yeah. And that's unreal, like unheard of for the 1900s. So everything I've read, everything she did, like she gets she gets a little crazy. If I'm being honest. I just imagine like her husband at the office and uh, you know, at the early 1811 water cooler get something to drink and one of his co-workers <laughs> kind of comes up next to him as they're both sipping on their little cups of water and their guy's like so uh so no gods no masters <laughs> my wife reads it <laughs> and she's like yeah does she like it oh she showed me that drawing with a penis <laughs> Yeah, so no God, no masters. You know, That's fun. as you do in the in the 1900s, the early 1900s. <laughs> Can you imagine some like you know kind of like upper aristocratic family like getting out of like you know their their fine housing in like Boston, get into the their like carriage as it rides off. Mm-hmm. The comic people are looking and glance over, and on the back of it's like a bumper sticker. It's like no gods, no masters. <laughs> as like the horse like trots away <laughs> i i mean sadly i don't think any aristocratic individuals are actually reading it because it was for the working class but i think that would be that'd be pretty funny i just think it's funny that like you know some well-to-do woman's getting it smuggled in by like you know her her kitchen like cook or something <laughs> i don't know i don't know i'm getting silly but um Okay, so, so that sounds like a fun, fun educational material for the working class women. Oh yeah, no, it was it was fucking great. Um, but people were upset, like really upset. Uh, there was a law in place called the Comstock Law, yeah. and it was basically a federal law that made it uh, like a crime to sell or distribute materials that were obscene, mm-hmm. like umbrella of obscene. So in this case, it was um, like the material was about birth control. Um, and it was also legal to like send them through the federal mail systems, which is what she was doing Mm -hmm. or to import them, which is later on. She sends them through the system. She's like in another country and still is making these pamphlets happen. Oh, nice. I'll explain it in a second. I like that type of commitment. (laughs) Um, so she was told multiple times to stop publishing the magazine 
Uh, and she pushed back, saying that it was pretty dumb to have material that focused on motherhood and womanhood slotted under the same restrictions as general pornography. Uh, and then she said she would continue publishing until it served its purpose. Mm-hmm. And a couple of months after that, she was charged with violating the Comstock Act and was looking at 20 years in prison. Oh, yikes. Okay. Yeah. While she's awaiting her trial, she flees to England. And she keeps working on the material and, again, sending them back to the U.S. to be distributed uh, until her trial. And then, from what I understand, her case was dismissed because of the publicity. Like, people kept writing in going, like, please, like, drop the charges. Like, she's just trying to educate. Like, stuff like that. And she received, like, money from followers. Um, When she got back, once it was dropped... She stopped distributing the magazine, and the reason she did was because it served as purpose, and the purpose was to, like, create, like, a scene, mm-hmm. essentially, publicity, and, like, encourage discussion that surrounded themselves one- around women's issues. So she was like, eh, it did its job. We're good now. On to the next thing. While she was in Europe... The National Birth Control League was formed to help distribute similar works. So I'm assuming that's where she sent those works to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were all avid supporters of her. And it was founded by a Mary Dennett, a Jesse Ashley, and a Clara Gruning Stillman. Uh, So remember that because, like, they're going to come back in a second. Um, So the next thing she does when she comes back from Europe and everything's dropped, she... (laughs) She comes back to New York, and she's like, look, I know I was arrested or just awaiting trial, but, like, I'm going to open the United States' first birth control clinic. Nice. Yeah. So she does that with her sister, Ethel Byrne, and uh, a friend of hers, I guess, Fania Mindell, and she's, like, an activist. She was a theater kid, uh, but she served mostly as an interpreter. So, like, because you're in an area where, like, immigrants are coming in and they only speak, like, Yiddish and Irish and things like that. So you need that that back and forth. So that's mm-hmm. what she was for. Um, and it was called the Brownsville Clinic. And the first day they served about 100 people. Nice. There you go. That's good yeah, for Yeah, so what happened, though, is it only served 450 people in total. And the reason for that is because October 16th, 1916, they opened the clinic. October 26th, 10 days later, they're arrested for violating the Comstock law. Obviously, because you can't, if you can't distribute them normally, the only next, like, logical step is to open a clinic so you can continue distributing things. <laughs> yeah, no, in an independent matter, manner to, uh, to the, the Postal Service. Um, exactly. Okay, so how um, did how did that go down? Well, okay, so they were arrested for violating the Comstock Act 10 days later for distributing obscene materials at the clinic. And then on November 14th, once they were out, they reopened it a second time, mm-hmm. and then they were arrested again, but this time for maintaining a public nuisance. Oh, fine. Oh, these darn women. So annoying. I know. <laughs> And then November 16th. So November 14th was the second time. November 16th, she reopens a third time. And then this time, the police just force a landlord to evict them. 
Ugh, those assholes. And they arrest her again. Yeah. <laughs> um, so all of those, they end up in trial in like January of 1917. Mm-hmm. And they're all found guilty. Right? Okay. Mendel, the interpreter, is fined $50 for disturbing the peace. Byrne, the sister, is convicted and sent to Blackwell's Island Prison for 30 days. She goes on a hunger strike immediately, and then she gets force-fed. Um, so before her condition is, like, fatal, Sanger and her followers, like, convince the governor of New York to give Byrne a pardon. Mm-hmm. And, like, this is... This is actually where the girls in the the girls in the National Birth Control League was formed. That like those guys, they helped form a committee that helped get Sanger to like meet with the governor and get her sister pardoned, essentially. Okay. So they were there. And they were also helping financially with like uh like law costs. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Uh and then for Sanger herself she was offered a deal, and it was either to be convicted or be pardoned under the pretense that she wouldn't do that shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and as we know, she stopped, and this is the end of the story for Margaret Singer, who settled down <laughs> to have a quiet life and to really explore her passion for growing um, vegetables. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. So her response was... With me, it is not a question of personal imprisonment or personal disadvantage. I am today and have always been more concerned with changing the law and the sweeping away of the law, regardless of what I have to undergo to have it done. And the judge goes, you sure that's your final answer? (laughs) (laughs) And she goes, I cannot respect the law as it exists today. And then she's found guilty. So her two choices for the fact that she was found guilty was either a $50 fine or imprisonment. And she was like, man, I'm going to spend a month in the Queen's Penitentiary. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to give those assholes my money. I mean, I imagine <laughs> like, adjusting for inflation, like, that could be a good chunk. So she, like, oh, I love, I, she's just an interesting character. So, so about a year after that, she's trying to, like, get appeals on the conviction. She wants to get that off a record. Uh, there are none to be given. Nobody's going to appeal any of it. Uh, but one of the judge's appeal decisions, uh, Judge Frederick Crane, included a more liberal interpretation of the Comstock Law. The committee that helped her with all of this and sent her money and all that good stuff, uh, they're all prominent members of the National Birth Control League, and it also published a booklet titled The Birth Control Movement. It essentially offered a history of the movement highlights of, like, Sanger's work and, like, a discussion of the positive effects of a family limitation. Uh, and then it stopped being a thing after the Brownsville Clinic trial, uh, but they still helped Sanger fund her monthly journal, The Birth Control Review, which she started in 1917. So she's mm-hmm. still writing. She's still getting shit out. Um, so they also lent their support to establish the American Birth Control League, which was the National Birth Control League's successor. So there are two leagues, American and National. Okay. From what I understand, the National Birth Control League sought to overturn legis- legislature, and the American Birth Control League's sole purpose was to educate the public about birth control and sexuality. Mm-hmm. This is, it's because of that, it's the precursor to Planned Parenthood. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's when she, 1921 was when she founded the, the American Birth Control League and that 
that will eventually become Planned Parenthood later. Mm-hmm. Um, 1928, she resigns as a president of the American Birth Control League because she is viewed as too radical in her views, which we will get to in a second. 1929, she forms the National Committee of Federal Legislation for Birth Control in order to lobby for the right of physicians to legally hand out contraceptives. Um, 1930, Sanger organizes the Birth Control International Information Center with the British feminist Edith Howe Martin, uh, and they basically helped create an international platform for Sanger. So she spoke in India, Burma, Malay, China, Philippines, Japan, Hawaii. Oh my Canada, goodness, wow, West she Coast. got around everywhere yeah, and, I mean, and she was traveling before nursing school too like she one i think the brownsville clinic was actually from what i understand it was uh like modeled after a clinic she saw in like holland oh before nursing right, school or some shit like nice. that yeah like what this woman was everywhere uh, 1936, the U.S. Court of Appeals rules that the physicians are exempt from the Comstock Law's ban on the import- importation of birth control materials, giving them the right to prescribe and hand out contraceptives. So that's when they're like, like, really, you can do this. Because, mm-hmm. like, before it was more like a liberal interpretation, kind of like, like a loosey-goosey. And then this time it was just like, nah, physicians are exempt. 1939, the American Birth Control League and the Birth Control Clinical Research Bureau... Uh, which was also started by Margaret Sanger. Uh, and it took a more clinical approach to contraceptives. So, like, it was more the science-y part. They, but they merge into the Birth Control Federation of America. So there's controversy surrounding that, which we will also touch in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're going to keep going. So, 1942, she is no longer an active participant in the birth control movement. She... Uh, like is living in Tucson, Arizona, and then the American Birth Control League changes its name to Planned Parenthood. And then 1951, she meets an endocrinologist named Gregory Pincus, Pincus, P-I-N-C-U-S, at a fucking dinner party in New York, and persuades him to work on a birth control pill. Oh, wait, no, yeah. okay, so as simple as that, just over cocktails. Just to be like, you know what it would be really great if. Women, like, just actually could not get pregnant because of a pill they took. Yeah. Hey, do you want another appetizer? I'm going to go get some. A little olive roll. No, essentially, like? I was... They're really good. I think they're Kamala <laughs> olives. Yeah. So, anyway, about this pill that you're going to be making for me. Um... <laughs> I, she meets him and is like, okay, this is fine. Let's do this. I like to um... think she, like, cornered him at this dinner party. And, like, he's capitalizing <laughs> over to his wife and, like, giving the blinking, like, get me out of here. And the wife is like, mm oh I'm not having any more babies. You better listen to that woman. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. So, like, ten years after that, he gets a pillowcade by the FDA for human use. Nice. She She's a woman yeah. who knows how to get shit done. <laughs> I'm just like, what? I imagine, like, you don't, woman. you don't want her mad at you, like, at all. No, no, I would want to stay on her good side. Oh, for sure. Because if she hated me, I would just, I would just, just fucking wash my hands and be done. I'm done. Like, be like, that's unreal. it. I don't real. The kind of I don't deserve to take the pill anymore. I've lost that right. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> I guess I'll have a billion babies. Oh my god, no, it was just insane. 
Yeah, so 1952, she comes out of retirement, and she helps fund or found the International Planned Parenthood Federation. So it's Planned Parenthood, but international. Because why not? Go big or go home. And then, exactly, 1959, she returns as the, or retires as the president of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. And then September 6th, 1966, she dies in Tucson at the age of 86. Uh, so, you want to unpack the nasty part now? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go for it. What kind of dirt you got on her? Uh, okay. So, remember when I told you that there was a merger between the Clinical Research Bureau and the American Birth Control League? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this guy, his name is Clarence J. Gamble of the Procter & Gamble Company, is selected to become the Birth Control Clinical Research Bureau's regional director for the South. And they come up with a project um, because there are a lot of black people in the South, and I don't really want to say the name of the project if I'm being perfectly honest with you. Okay, I'm intrigued. <laughs> I don't really know how to go about saying this. Let's let's pause for I mean, a second. Okay, like, like I don't if, know. like like the N words in there. I mean, we can just yeah. Like I'm I'm white. I do not have like I'm not touching that at all. I'm not touching that either. There's a there's know, a bug that sounds way too similar to that word, and I won't even say the name of the bug because I was like, mm, I get nope, 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 none of that. Not for us. It's I'm gonna call it the Black People Project. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is that worse? Well, I don't know. I don't know what it's called, so I don't. I have nothing to put that in context with. The the N word. It's it's two words. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So like, I can't. We're just gonna yeah, go. No, with, we're not saying that. No. So the Black People Project is what I'm gonna go with. Um, but essentially, it was to create a space of education. Within those communities. Mm. So getting those pamphlets out about sexual education, birth control, things like that. Um, There were letters back and forth between Sanger and Proctor that were like, they were concerned that leaders of these communities would regard birth control as an an extermination plot. Uh, I mean, was it? I see from what I from what I'm gathering, I've read through the letters One of it was, she writes to Gamble, she goes, we do not want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the population. And the minister is the man who can straighten that idea out if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. So that could be interpreted two ways. That could be interpreted to, we do want to exterminate and like, we don't want anyone to find out or... We don't want to, and we don't want people to make that assumption. So we're going to have African-American leaders be the ones to hand out these pamphlets and hand out these ideas so that it's not like all of us coming down on them. It's like them having a community. Yeah, yeah. And I still, yeah, I still, I would like to think that it would be the latter, that it's from a trusted source and they just wanted to help women. Okay, so. But a lot of people. Yeah, what has you hesitating over it? A lot of people have an assumption that it was the first one. And there are, like, a lot of, like, conservatives and people who are anti, like, Planned Parenthood um, who insist that, like, Planned Parenthood is still to this day 
a racist organization, that they'll take money specifically for the abortion of minority babies. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, that's so tricky because at the same time, like they serve a lot of communities and populations that don't have equal access to health care. And, you know, that can be disproportionately skewed when you look at racial lines. So Absolutely. I, yeah. You know, it might be a little convenient to try to call that out and be like, oh, hey, look, they're helping people who need the help the most. Oh, by the right. way, that totally makes them racist. Right. No, like it's it's like a I it's just so many jumps that I wouldn't follow because it's not like logical to me if you look at all the like like the sociology behind it and like the poverty like areas and like who predominantly lives in those areas what communities live in those areas and just the systematic like unbalance between minorities and essentially white people like it's all it all works together even the education system nobody's funding the education like sexual education of like like they can barely fund books so those areas are being served more because of that lack of education Mm -hmm. not because of their skin color but like i don't i don't know like another thing is like another like situation where people think she's racist is because she also spoke to a woman's group connected to the kkk in silver lake new jersey okay okay that's that's kind of a big red flag yeah so that's another thing that makes me go so maybe Planned Parenthood isn't, but I don't know about actually what's happening with her. I mean, her. yeah, no, personally, she might have some, some she might be a little, just a little yeah. racist. Um, she, so she spoke, she spoke to them, and she wrote in her autobiography, but you know, when you write in your autobiography, like everybody does, sometimes you skew some shit, right? So I don't know what, if what she wrote is like actually true, like how she felt. What she said was, always to me, any aroused group was a good group. Uh, And therefore, I accepted an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan at Silver Lake, New Jersey. One of the weirdest experiences I had in lecturing. And then she apparently continues that she didn't hold the group in the highest esteem. Um, And then she, like, wrote, Never before had I looked into a sea of faces like these. I was sure that if I had uttered one word such as abortion outside the usual vocabulary of these women, uh, they would go off into hysteria. And so my address that night had to be in the most elementary terms as though I was trying to make children understand. So in her book, she's like, I'm just talking to them because I need to speak and these are women. To me, like in her book, she's thinking, I'm thinking academically, I'm doing this academically, but I don't think she quite understood that the the ramifications of her actions, the consequences of her saying, yes, I'll speak to these people. Yeah, as in just agreeing is in itself essentially an endorsement of the group itself. Yeah. So I don't really know what was going on with her with that, but I do know that I feel like Planned Parenthood is whatever she was doing. I feel like it's its own thing now. The reason she stepped down was because of her radical views, and I'm sure that was part of it. Her second issue was that she was absolutely, she may, she may or may not have been a racist, but she definitely was an ableist. And both of those things are horrible, but she just kept saying and doing things that were like very concerning so when I say she's an ableist she was an avid like supporter of eugenics she has I have a list of works here 
let's see, 1920, Some Moral Aspects of Eugenics, 1921, The Eugenic Conscience, 1924, The Purpose of Eugenics, 1925, Birth Control and Positive Eugenics, 1928, Birth Control, The Chiru Eugenics. For those of you who don't know, eugenics is a, it's a science based around um, picking out what is deemed undesirable traits in humans and like breeding in what is seen as desirable traits into future generations. So, I mean, Hitler and the Aryan race is your biggest is your biggest thing. And I mean, unfortunately, they got a lot of their eugenics um, kind of uh, materials and mentality and t- to see how it was working from the United States. Yeah. Because it was, it was also a huge movement at the time, too. Like, in that, in that time frame, eugenics was a normal thing to be okay with, which is very concerning. Um, she had these goals for the, the American Birth Control League, the one that she created that would eventually be Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. before they, like, you know. The thing was, we hold that children should be, one, conceived in love, two, born of the mother's conscious desire, three, and only begotten under conditions which render possible the heritage of health. So, therefore, we hold that every woman must possess the power and freedom to prevent conception except when these conditions can be satisfied. And then, under, they have terms, like the appendix, like like the aims of this league. And it's, like, research. They want to do research, investigation. They want to do, like, focus on hygiene and physiological. They want to focus on education to people. They want to focus on politics and legislature and changing the law. They want to focus on organization, various states to work towards getting this stuff out. Uh, And then they're focusing on international stuff. So once they're done doing stuff domestically, they're going to go out into the world and, like, talk to women and, like, other countries Mm -hmm. but one of them on there was sterilization and it says sterilization of the insane and feeble-minded and the encouragement of this operation upon those afflicted with inherited or transmissible diseases with the understanding that sterilization does not deprive the individual of his or her sex expression but merely renders him incapable of producing children so Yeah, that was a little bit of a doozy in United States history. Yeah. In one of her books, she wrote, The emergency problem of segregation and sterilization must be faced immediately. Every feeble-minded girl or woman of the hereditary type, especially of the moron class, should be segregated during the reproductive period. Otherwise, she is almost certain to bear imbecile children, who in turn are just as certain to breed other defectives. The male defectives are no less dangerous. Segregation carried out for one or two generations would give us only partial control of the problem. Moreover, when we realize that each feeble-minded person is a potential source of an endless progeny of defect, we prefer the policy of immediate sterilization, of making sure that parenthood is absolutely prohibited to the feeble-minded. And she wrote out who she thought was a feeble-minded and, like, she put epileptics in her list. Yeah, no, there's there's a whole clinical breakdown of, like, what classifies someone as being feeble-minded as opposed to a moron. Uh, those were clinical terms. Um, and there's a certain point where the Supreme Court got on board with the forced sterilization of people who were defined as such. Like, if you are of a sound mind and the only thing that's wrong with you is that you're, like, you have a physical disability. And, like, yes, those things are 
horrible like something some physical disabilities are really hard to deal with but like if you want a child and you're of sound mind fucking go for it talk with it with your partner and like I don't know just it's between you and your partner and that's it that's all it should be like nobody should be sterilizing you Mm -hmm. and that's obviously crazy I don't (laughs) No, it's just that you're right. I mean, there's a there's a, a too large chapter of that within American history and the, the forced sterilization of people and mostly people of color. And I know there has been some movement in getting states to reimburse those who were affected and to kind of own up to their institutionalized forced sterilization. But it's yeah, it's it's a very ugly history. Yeah. And like, unfortunately, it's an ugly history that like landed with Sanger like Mm. she was a she was a product of that history she was a product of that time and she had some views that obviously nobody should be okay with um but also I think that what she started with Planned Parenthood even if it's not exactly what she had hoped for it still does a lot of good like now today Mm -hmm. And it's super important that we recognize both, like, every every single part of her. Um, and we recognize that this is why we shouldn't meet our heroes, if I'm being honest. <laughs> like, because at the end of the day, we're all, like, shit people, right? Um, but, yeah, it doesn't make what she believed in right. Uh, she clearly was a shit person in those regards, but it does not take away what Planned Parenthood does for millions of people, both men and women. Um, so, today... I can go over what we do since I know we're all waiting for those statistics. 2017-2018 <laughs> annual report. Yes, abortion is a part of it. Whether you are pro-life or pro-choice, that is just a thing that happens. And it is not federally funded at all. No. There are, not there is no federal dollars that go towards abortion services through Planned Parenthood. That's mm-hmm. all financed privately. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I mean, like, you think of the organization as how big it is now, as just domestically. Add the fact that there is also an international Planned Parenthood. There are tons of donors that are willing to fund these, these like, not, not abortions, but all of the clinical trials that are done for Planned Parenthood to make, a, like, a healthier, like, a healthier community. Mm-hmm. Just, like, you're paying for other parts of the health system that should be given to people that is basic human like medical needs which is also stuff that Planned Parenthood does so I have a whole list uh that goes with we're gonna start STI tests HIV tests genital warts treatments other STI prevention and treatments reversible contraception emergency contraception female sterilization of consenting adults vasectomies other contraceptive services I'm gonna go with those are condoms, breast exams, pap tests, HPV vaccines, colposcopy procedures, LEEP procedures, crotherapy procedures, well woman exams, pregnancy tests, prenatal services, miscarriage care, family practice services, adoption referrals, UTI infection treatments, and then they educate the fuck ton out of communities who need it. So last year or the last annual report, there were 9,537,592 services total, right? Mm-hmm. 
321,384 of those were abortions. Whether they were like immediate, I'm pregnant, I need to get rid of this baby, or if they were actually, there was a medical necessity for these abortions, they were done. And if you divide the small number by the big number, it's going to be 0.3% of what Planned Parenthood did in 2007, 2018. Yeah, and I mean, ideally, with increasing uh, information to those services, you cut down on unwanted uh, pregnancies to begin with. Mm-hmm. That sex education is important. Yeah. Um, so that is what Planned Parenthood does now. And that is the life of Margaret Sanger, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> I had to Google the arrest records. Like, how ma- literally, I Googled, how many times has Margaret Sanger been arrested? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she undeniably was a woman who really passionately fought for what she believed in, whether or not that's right. still, um, you know, socially appropriate, this day and age of what she was fighting for. Um, but, it, I mean, she obviously made an impact and paved the way for for making women's reproductive lives uh, a lot easier and putting them more in control of the people that, you know, shockers should actually be controlling them. I like how we both unintentionally um, discussed uh, feminist figures fighting in, like, the late 19th century to, like, early to mid-20th century. Oh, yeah, we didn't really. Yeah, that's when we didn't uh, exactly plan. No. <laughs> yeah, no, but it sounds like a lot of the techniques she was using for, like, mailing out her pamphlets and her booklets, I mean, that was what the suffragists mm-hmm. were using um, to kind of... The same thing. Yeah, to get the whole point across of, like, hey, women should totally have the right to vote. Right to vote, right to birth control, right to equal representation yeah. in their art. You know, the little things. So thank you, everyone, for joining us for our second episode of My Favorite Feminist. Um, again, God bless you, because we're still in the early days, and it's still going to be a little awkward. Um, just a tiny bit. Just a tad bit. Uh, <laughs> but don't worry, because we are statistically proven to get less awkward with more time. <laughs> that just rolls right off the tongue. Um, so fucking science, guys. <laughs> so, Milana, if people are interested in seeing the show notes or seeing what we're up to, um, where can they check us out? Absolutely. So we have a website. It's myfavoritefeminist.com. Uh, we have a Facebook and Instagram, uh, which is also under My Favorite Feminists. Um, you can email us at info at myfavoritefeminists.com. And at some point, I'll make a Twitter. But I don't... I think we touched on this earlier. Twitter and I are not friends. So give me a couple of links to get that up, and we'll go from there. If you liked what you heard, uh, we have subscribe buttons on our facebook and instagram Uh, if you wanted to talk to us uh we do have that email so we do want to hear from you guys and this time around we're gonna ask you in the in the spirit of planned parenthood if you could have any celebrity as your OBGYN, who would it be and why i like the idea of batman in costume like with the l- yeah. little scrub hairnet over it and everything, and like a little smock <laughs> on and gloves and everything. Be like, hi, I'm Batman. Miss Angolia, what are you in here to- for today? Did that UTI finally clear up? <laughs> I mean, I know, Batman, you remembered. Oh, thank you. 
it's it's those little touches when you're when your uh doctor remembers you. It either means that you've been there too many times, or that he's really good at his job. And I'm hoping it's the second one. Sorry, I was just trying to think of what other celebrities would be pretty wild. <laughs> I'd be like Oprah. Are, Oprah. Oh God. <laughs> Are you filming right now? Are you gonna are you interviewing? Are you are you interviewing my doctor? What do you hear? Oh, you are the doctor. Oh goodness, you are an amazing woman. Um, uh, the stirrups. Yeah, can we? Can you just give me a sec? Okay. I just no. I really respect you a lot, and I'm gonna be honest. I haven't shaved. I'm sorry. I just. How's Gail? How is she doing? <laughs> oh my god i don't know why that makes a difference oh, i'd be like whatever I, Batman, I you need a machete but oprah i am so sorry i didn't know <laughs> i didn't i would prepared <laughs> all right so let us know who your favorites are and uh i guess we'll see you in the next one all right until then have a good one guys thanks <laughs> bye guys Come on, party, come on, say, so come on, pray, so come on, party, come on, pray.